0: Please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I was 19 years old when I preached my first sermon. Uh, It was a tag team sermon with my dad who's been preaching a long time. Uh, He preached the first half and then he tagged me in and I came up and ruined the second half. Uh, We we preached the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. I'm, I'm pretty sure my dad picked that Passage because he knew if I couldn't preach that one, I probably couldn't preach. Uh, that's, that's, that's a good one. I remember, though, I was so nervous, man, that day, so nervous that I even tucked my shirt in. Uh, if you see me with a shirt tucked, then you know something it's bad. something's going on. Um, but all in all, I, I think the sermon went OK. Uh, I got a chance to learn and, and grow in front of my home church, people who loved me. And in spite of what was probably not a great sermon, they were still very encouraging, which was just which so nice. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus's first sermon, at least his first recorded sermon in the book of Luke. This was a big moment for him because like my first sermon, it was also in front of his hometown family and friends. And yet, by the time Jesus finished, they didn't encourage him or tell him how great of a preacher he was going to be. They actually tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him. True story. What did he say? (laughs) What was that sermon? And how can I make sure I don't ever preach? No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to have to preach today. But what does it tell us? What does it tell us about the person of Jesus? Jesus. And that's what I want us to see today. Remember, that's the whole goal of Luke's gospel. Luke set out to write this well-researched, accurate account of the life of Christ. And he did it so that we might have certainty in who Jesus is. Guys, that's the most important question we could ever answer. Who is Jesus? Who do we believe him to be? And why does that matter for our lives 2,000 years later? That's what we're wrestling with every week of this series, and today's passage may be the clearest example of why people have wrestled with the person of Jesus all throughout history. Let's start in our passage, Luke chapter 4, and let's just start with verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up. To read, Uh, at this point we know that Jesus has been traveling around quite a bit. He started to generate some buzz in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. So you can imagine all the things that were being said about him back in his hometown. You can imagine the excitement when he showed up that day at the local synagogue. Uh, The synagogue was a place in in the first century for Jewish worship. Uh, Though the temple existed in Jerusalem, that was a long way for people to go every week. So communities built these things called synagogues where they could come together every week on the Sabbath and worship in pretty similar ways to us today. There was singing, there was prayer, there was the public reading of Scripture, and then usually one of the men would be invited to come up and explain and apply the meaning of the Old Testament text that was read. In fact, I thought about next week maybe just trying that, just calling on some of you, hey, Weston, why don't you come? No, I'm kidding. Uh, I I won't do that. He was really sweating. No, uh, but Jesus, um, that's how they did it. And Jesus being from Nazareth, having received some renown as a teacher, was understandably, he was the one invited to, to read the passage and to say something. And here's what he read, Luke chapter 4, verse 17 to 19. In the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads here from... Isaiah chapter 61, and there's a lot we could say here. Uh, Isaiah, in his book, he, he spoke and prophesied a lot about this figure called the servant of the Lord. That was the term he used to describe the Messiah. And this passage in particular pointed to the day when the Messiah would come and usher in the kingdom of God. And it described what that kingdom would look like. It would be a kingdom of good news and freedom to those who are in need. So look at the different groups that receive blessings in God's kingdom according to Isaiah. We see the poor, captives, the blind, the the oppressed. Those are groups who are said to receive good news and liberty when the Messiah comes. Why those groups? Why not the rich and the the powerful? Let's let's just think about this for a second. We, We talked back in our series on the image of God. We had a sermon on poverty. And we talked about how the Bible says God has special care for the poor and how the poor and the needy and those who are suffering are in a special position because of their desperate state. They are, in in general, more willing to turn to God than those who have all they need. It's not that wealth and having material things is bad. There's nothing wrong with making money and doing well. It's just that those in need tend to more easily recognize their need for God. But we also know Isaiah wasn't just talking about a physical reality. This wasn't just material poverty and physical captivity. Isaiah was also speaking of spiritual realities. That's why sin in the Bible is often compared to poverty and slavery and blindness. We're said to be uh, spiritually poor, spiritually enslaved, spiritually blind. So what we see is that God's kingdom is for those who are in spiritual need And recognize that need for God. And this is a theme Luke picks up very strongly in his book. He has this really strong focus on the outsider, the the outcast. Uh, Remember that Luke wrote his gospel to a Gentile audience. These were people who were not ethnically Jewish, but who were outside the nation of Israel. And Luke makes great effort to show that God opened his kingdom for the Gentile as well as the Jews. So you take all of that together and we see why Luke puts this passage here. For Luke, this sermon is the first one he recorded because it summarizes so well the ministry of Jesus. And we also see why Jesus chose this passage to be read. This is the heart of his mission and ministry to the outsider, the hurting, the needy, both physically and spiritually. Jesus gravitated toward these kinds of people because they were the ones often most ready to receive him. Now, this passage from Isaiah would have been well known to the Jewish audience in Nazareth. They wouldn't have taken any issue with Jesus reading from Isaiah. But it's what happens next that really sets everyone off. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 20 to 22 and Students, if you're still with me, say, we are. We are. Whew, elbow the person next to you then, because <laughs> we got some struggling. <laughs> I didn't sleep a lot this weekend, so it's fair. Uh, look at verses 20 to 22. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And notice that the tension that's building here in this story. Jesus, he gets them talking, he sits down. And everyone is looking, waiting, holding their breath to see what he's going to say. The scripture reading, that was a routine part. But Jesus' next words were not. He says, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Basically, he says these verses that Isaiah wrote, they're happening today because they are about me. Boy, that that was a big thing to say. The prophecies concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament were the hope of the Jewish people. They were looking and waiting and longing for this person to come and save them and make all things right again. So this passage from Isaiah was their hope for the future. They also, no doubt, saw themselves as being the ones Isaiah was talking about. We've talked about the difficult setting that uh, the Jewish people lived in during this time. They were under Roman rule through King Herod. And in many ways, they were oppressed and persecuted. So for Jesus to say he was the fulfillment of this passage, he could not have said anything more shocking than that. And there's an interesting response. Did you see it? On one hand, the people were impressed with his speaking ability and his words. And then on the other hand, they knew Jesus better than most. Jesus wasn't just a famous teacher to them. He was the little kid that grew up down the street. He was the carpenter's son who learned the trade at a young age. They watched him grow and develop as a seemingly normal young Jewish man. That's why they respond and they say, Hey, isn't this the Joseph's son that, that, that we know? They were impressed by his words, but they couldn't believe his message because they couldn't see how the Messiah would be the carpenter's son from their neighborhood. It just didn't make sense to them. So in that one question we see, they doubted. Again, they seemed to be thoroughly impressed by his teaching ability, but they did not believe what he was saying. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that would be the response. And rather than trying to defend himself or explain a little more or prove that he was really the Messiah, he instead went right after their hardened hearts. He chose to expose their biggest problem. Look at Luke 4, verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus says, hey, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, prove it. If you're the Messiah, why don't you prove it? We've heard about all these tricks you can do. Why don't you do something for us? Jesus had done a lot of miracles at this point, healing people. And he knew they wanted him to do the same. They wanted to see something. Then they would believe. They needed evidence before they could accept his message. So this is where Jesus cuts right to the heart. Look at Luke 4, 24 to 27. And he said, Uh, Jesus brings up two examples that again would have been very familiar to these people Elijah and Elisha, two guys on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament prophets. They were highly revered. He says, yet in their days, they were often rejected by their own people. And when they were rejected, they took their ministry outside the nation of Israel. Elijah went to a widow and helped her during a famine, but it wasn't an Israelite widow. It was a Gentile woman from Sidon, which was outside the nation of Israel. Elisha miraculously cleansed a leper in his ministry, but it wasn't an Israelite leper. It was a Gentile from Syria, which was outside the nation of Israel. Jesus says it wasn't that there wasn't any needy widows or lepers in Israel. Elijah and Elisha went outside the nation because they weren't welcome inside the nation. So God sent them to a Gentile widow and a Gentile leader to help them instead of his own people. And Jesus makes clear, when you put everything together, he says, he says the same thing was happening in his day. The people of Jesus' own hometown were the Israelites rejecting God's prophet, and as a result, the good news proclaimed by Isaiah was going to pass them by. When you understand that context, this response makes more sense. Look at the last verses, verses 28 to 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away you imagine that? People were so mad. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. Remember, this was someone they knew. Someone, an own citizen from their town. Someone they watched grow up and they were ready to kill him just because of what he said. But Jesus survived. He walked away. It wasn't his time to go yet. But this same scene would play out many times over the course of his ministry. Jesus had a scandalous outrageous, offensive, infuriating message to many. And ultimately they would kill him. So in the time we have left let's look at the scandal of Jesus back then and the scandal of Jesus now. Here was the scandal then. Number one. number one, The scandal of Jesus is that grace was offered to outsiders. Remember before Jesus gave the, the Elijah and Elisha examples, the people weren't angry they were impressed by his words they doubted he was telling the truth but they didn't want to kill him yet until he brought up the whole gentile thing and in order to understand what made that so scandalous we need to to understand the relationship at this time between jews and gentiles the jews you may know were god's chosen people they were the ones who received the old testament law the land and the covenants they were descendants of the old testament patriarchs they were special But they took that uniqueness for granted. They began to rely on their past privileges for their present standing before God. They thought, hey, we're Israelites. We're good with God. Look at us. It's it's everyone else who's in trouble, not us. But the Old Testament shows that God's plan was not just for Israel. His, His goal was to ultimately bring salvation to all the world and to make a people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Yes, the gospel would start in Israel. The Messiah would come first to his people. But they weren't supposed to close the door behind them. They weren't supposed to hoard the treasure they'd been given, but rather to take it to the world. They were to be a light to the nations, a conduit through which God's grace flowed to everyone else. But the Jewish people missed this, even though they knew it. The prophets had told them, even from the very beginning, when God made a promise to Abraham, he told them, yeah, I'm going to bless your people but they, so that they can bless all the other nations. But somehow they missed it. And as a result, instead of reaching out to Gentiles, they looked down on them. Instead of building bridges to the nations, they built walls. Literally in the temple, the outermost part was called the court of the Gentiles where they were blocked from getting any closer to God. Gentiles were viewed as being outside of God's mercy simply because of who they were and where they came from. They were outsiders. And because of that, they were often despised. We see this in the book of Acts. When the gospel begins to go outside of Israel, the Jewish people who became Christians had a really hard time understanding why the Gentiles were also becoming Christians. And they were trying to figure out how they could integrate these people into their churches and lives when their culture was so different from theirs. This helps us understand why the people at Nazareth got so angry when Jesus brought up those stories. It's also why Jesus often found himself at odds with the religious elite, because Jesus didn't just take his message to Gentiles, but to all sorts of forbidden outsiders. Jesus went to Samaria and preached to Samaritans. He interacted with a Canaanite woman and a Roman centurion. He healed lepers and beggars. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. He called fishermen and a zealot to be his disciples. Jesus was always expanding the circle of who could be included in the kingdom of God. And that made people mad. They felt they owned the circle. And they didn't want those kinds of people to be inside their circle. But Jesus was trying to demonstrate that the the boundaries of the circle weren't about keeping all the right rules or being from the right family or being deserving of God's grace. No, the ones who were included in the kingdom of God were the ones who knew they didn't deserve it. They were the ones who had nothing to give but to just put their faith in Jesus and fall on him. And just as Isaiah foretold, those people, the followers of Jesus, were often... The outsiders, the poor, the beat down, the left out and forgotten, the good for nothing, no good sinners. While the high and holy missed Jesus, the low and humble saw him for who he was. And Jesus gave them grace. That was a scandal in the first century world of Judaism. But you know what? It turns out it's still a scandal today. Here's the scandal of Jesus now, number two. The scandal of Jesus is that grace is still offered to outsiders. And friends, this is what makes the gospel good news. Guys, we would not be here if this was not true. For you and me were once outsiders. We were once separated from God because of our sins, undeserving of God's salvation and grace. Uh, Listen to this from Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Guys, he's talking about us. We're Gentiles. None of the Old Testament was originally given to us. We were grafted into the tree that finds its roots in the Israelite people. And not only that, but we're also sinners. We have no hope or should have no hope of God's love and acceptance at all. And yet he says we've been brought near to God through Jesus. His blood tore down the veil. It d- destroyed the court of the Gentiles. And now we have free access to our Father in heaven. We're in the family. We're adopted in. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> if we can't amen that, we can't amen nothing. That's, that's good. That's the good news of the gospel that we have, that we've believed in and received. But here's what happens. Just like the Jewish people in Jesus' day, once we get through the door, sometimes we're quick to shut it behind us. Over time, we may start to believe that God saved us because we're special. Or there must have been some sort of quality that got us in. I mean, look at us. We're good. We're decent. We're hardworking people. We deserved it. But those people, them. Oh, they they don't deserve it like us. We would never say that out loud. But it creeps into our hearts sometimes. And what we do, whether we realize it or not, is we draw these lines. And we think of some group or some type of person as being beyond the line, out of bounds, unable to turn to Jesus and receive his grace. For some of us, that might be people of another ethnicity or social class or might be Trump supporters or Biden supporters, staunch atheists or Muslim refugees, or maybe people who have committed a crime or done something we deem too far, or people who live a homosexual or transgender lifestyle, or people who look different, dress different, talk different, people we'd be shocked to see walk in church, or people we'd have a hard time welcoming onto our row. I faced this often when I did student ministry back in Tennessee. One of my students would tell me about their struggling friend, and I'd say, hey, you know, why don't you invite them to our church? We'd love to have them. And they'd say, church? If they walked in here, this place would catch fire. I mean, they, they're, they're bad. They, they do drugs, or they're gay, or I can't invite them. Or they're just too bad. And, and I wanted to scream at them, you missed the point. You missed the point, don't you know? This is where we want those people to be so they can see the love of Christ and turn to him. But then I would stop and think, what does it say about our church that our students would be afraid to invite a friend who was far from God? Maybe we've become a country club instead of a hospital. Maybe we've missed the point. Guys, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. We know that, but we're all tempted to label some people that way, and so we look down on them, and we even begin to despise them, and we're scandalized when they come to Christ and receive the same grace we did. That's the ultimate point of the most famous story Jesus ever taught, the story I preached in my first sermon. It's the prodigal son. Do you remember the story? The son, the prodigal, he takes his portion of the inheritance. He goes off and he just blows it on a really sinful lifestyle. And he becomes hungry and poor. He's so hungry he wants to eat what the pigs are eating that he's feeding. And then he decides one day, you know, I could be better off back at my dad's. I could be one of his servants. And so he decides to go back home. And we have this beautiful picture of the father who, who should have been furious at his son, who should have totally cut him off. He's running out, running out to greet him and kiss him, and he throws this huge party for him. And in our minds, that's where the story stops. we got a happy ending. The son is welcomed home. We even name it after him, the prodigal son. So when I prepared to preach my first sermon, I thought that was the big point. A really messed up sinner comes back to God and gets saved, and we all celebrate So Jesus was talking there to those who were far off and telling them to come home and the Father would receive them. And and that's absolutely part of it. It's a big application from the story. But here's what I discovered. The sinful people who were far from God were not the audience for this story. Jesus was not telling this parable to them. Listen to the setting that prompts the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. Luke 15. Verses 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them these stories. Jesus was responding to the Pharisees, to the religious insiders, the high and holy folks, the ones who, who thought they were inside the circle. They thought they drew the circle and they were complaining. And what were they complaining about? They were upset for the same reason the synagogue crowd in Nazareth was upset. Jesus was going outside their circle to those who didn't belong. So with that context in mind, it makes sense why the story doesn't end with the prodigal son. There's another son in the story. We kind of tack on to the end. We don't know what to do with him because it's not a happy ending. But this guy is the point of the story. Listen to what Jesus says about the second son. Luke 15. These many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And it's found. Do you see the point that Jesus was making? The second son was furious that his brother, his own brother who he had labeled as undeserving, received the love and grace of his father that he thought was his. And that's what the Pharisees and religious people of Jesus' day were doing. And that's what happens to us if we ever start to believe we deserve this. The undeserving receiving grace will always be a scandal to those who think they're deserving. When those on the outside, far from God, are welcomed in, it will always anger those who think they're worthy to be on the inside. When sinners come home, it will always bother those who think they are perfect. But here's the reality for the ones who think they deserve grace, that it's owed to them. They will find, just like the older brother, they are actually the ones far from God. They are the ones missing God's grace available to them because grace, by its definition, is only available to those who don't deserve it. So in light of this, here's two challenges I'll close with today. First, never forget God's grace to you. Never forget where you came from, what you deserved and what you've received in Christ solely because of his grace. Regularly preach to yourself the gospel and remind yourself where you would be if not for grace. And second, never forget God's grace to others. Every lost person you encounter is only one step behind you, and that one step is Jesus. Think about it. The person who shocks you with their vulgarity and depravity, who you can't believe could be so blasphemous and wicked, is only in need of one thing that could totally transform their entire life, and it's the same thing you got in your depravity too. It's grace. We must learn to see people the way Jesus sees them. Sheep without a shepherd. Prodigals without directions home. Every person we meet is a candidate for God's grace. And get this, the further they are from God, the less likely they are to be converted in man's eyes. The more amazing the display of grace I mean, that was, that's what makes the prodigal story so compelling. There, there was no way after all that guy did he should be able to come home and he'd be received with a party. But God delights in lavishing his grace on those who deserve it the least because it brings him greater glory. So that means, friends, there is no one too far gone. No one who is out of reach of God's grace. And God is sending you and me to get them that good news. That if they will just turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. We have now been given this message from Jesus to proclaim the same one that almost got him thrown off a cliff. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind. Liberty to those who are oppressed. This is the year of the Lord's favor. The good news of the gospel is available to all. Let's be faithful to take it to all. No matter how much of an outsider they may be, because we were once outsiders too. Don't forget that. Let's pray.